Welcome to the Five By, the Fivest podcast of rapid fire board game reviews. On today's episode, Jose reviews Cosmic Frog, and if he doesn't say frogs in space, I will be very disappointed. I'm enjoying a solo trip to ancient Rome in Concordia Solitaria, and we have classic reviews of German Whist by Mason and Hoyle Doc Mau Mau by Ruth. But first, Ruel starts us off in Oaxaca with Zapotec. The city of Monte Alban was at the center of the Zapotec state, a highly developed pre-Columbian civilization in Mesoamerica. Here, you and your fellow players will build temples, cornfields, and villages while also constructing houses, contributing to pyramids, and making sacrifices to the gods. Who will use their resources to build most efficiently and score the most victory points in one of the earliest cities in Mesoamerica? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Zapotec, a game by Fabio Lopiano, with art by Zbigniew Elmgilter and Alexander Zawada. Zapotec was published in 2022 by Board and Dice, who sent me the game and sponsored a live run-through on my Twitch channel. In Zapotec, players simultaneously choose an action card at the start of each of the game's five rounds to determine turn order. Next, each player will gather resources and perform actions such as building houses, temples, cornfields, villages, and or pyramids on different areas of the main board. Players may also perform rituals that will garner endgame victory points or sacrifice to the gods, which will move them up the sacrifice track and gain resources or give them discounts on other actions. After five rounds, the player with the most points wins. I'm cutting to the chase here. Zapotec is outstanding and one of my favorite Euro games in recent memory. It's a tight game full of tense moments as you try to squeeze the most out of every single one of your turns. You'll build temples, cornfields, or villages to earn more resources, and you have a puzzle on your player board as you try to place those resources in optimal spots for each round's gather income phase. It's an efficiency puzzle that feels like it belongs in a much longer and rules-heavy game, but instead it's a surprisingly spry game that's over before you know it. For me, the best and most brilliant part of Zapotec is its action selection card system and how it's tied into three different things on your turn. First, it determines the turn order for the round, with the highest card going first. Second, it dictates what row or column of resources you'll receive from your player board during the gather income phase. And finally, it dictates where you can build on the main board during your turn. Selecting your action card sets up your turn and gives you plenty to consider. Of course you'll want to go first so you can build where you want, but it's not always the best choice since each card has specific areas where you can build. If you really wanted to build on the Mitla area of the board, for example, it might be a low number. Do you risk being outbid to build there? And do you play a high card that doesn't give you the best row or column of resources on your player board? Or do you allow other players to go first so you can get as many resources as possible while giving your opponents a chance to build or move up the sacrifice track before you? You may give them an opportunity to claim a ritual card first, which means you'll have to pay one of your precious gold pieces in order to score that ritual card as well. I love all of these decisions baked into one simple card. You'll usually have good options for every turn, but you may not get to do them at the time you want to do them. Yes, build houses for generating resources, but other players may go up the sacrifice track and earn themselves points or ongoing discounts for other actions. Or go up the sacrifice track or do the trade action, but lose out on building a house for resources and victory points. Of course, your opponents might start building the pyramid, which gives them the choice of how it will score at the end of the game. You can still contribute to the pyramid later, but you'll be at the mercy of what your opponents have already picked for scoring. 
every time I've played Zapotec, it's been a lot of fun trying to figure out the best path and then adjusting if and or when my opponents mess up my plans. Like most games I enjoy, I always want one more turn or one more round to complete what I want to do. And I love the fact that this kind of gaming experience isn't reserved for rules-heavy two-hour-plus Euros. Two-player games can easily be finished in 30 minutes. The solo game is another terrific option within that time frame and comes with an easy-to-manage card-driven solo bot. If there's one thing I could complain about Zapotec, it's that the theme feels tacked on. However, this could have been a standard trading in the Mediterranean game, but Born and Dice tried a different time period and culture and then hired cultural consultants to be more aware and respectful in their choice. They even included a pronunciation guide, which I'd love to see in more rulebooks. Kudos to Fabio Lopiano, who's also designed Merv, The Heart of the Silk Road, Kalamala, and Ragusa. And while Board and Dice is known for these two-hour-plus games that start with the letter T, I hope this trend of crunchy one-hour Euros continues. Along with their other recently published game, Founders of Teotihuacan, Zapotec is a more accessible game than their heavier titles, yet still offers a rich and satisfying gaming experience. It also proves that you can have all of your Euro goodness without needing multiple hours or players at the tabletop. Thanks again to Board and Dice for the copy of Zapotec and for sponsoring my Twitch channel. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. What did you galactic booze? Today, we're going to be exploring the vastness of space, searching for shards of a destroyed planet in order to satiate our hunger and Cosmic Frog from Devious Weasel Games. In a story as old as time and covered in so many other board games like Catan and Dominion, in Cosmic Frog, up to six players are going to take control of a two-mile-tall, super-powered space frog called Arena. As they search through space for shards of an exploded planet in order to feast on the different biomes that once flourished on there. As you fill your gullet with land, you then have to fly off into space to store your treats into your space vault. You're going to repeat this process until one player has scored the most points by collecting the most types of terrain. When playing Cosmic Frog, each player is going to be given a secret frog ability and is given the option to reveal their abilities when they feel it's necessary. At the start of a turn, someone's going to flip over the top card of the action deck to see which player is going to go next. On your turn, you can do things like jump onto the main board, which is called the shard, you can jump off the side of the shard and slingshot across into any other side of the shard using a currency called Oomph. You can eat terrain pieces that you're currently standing on, or you can engage in fights with other players and knock them around the shard in order to either cause damage to the shard itself, or you try to knock them into the outer dimensions of space. And if you do that, you can also take food out of their gullets and take it for yourself. Once you're done on the shard, you can also jump off into space in order to disgorge yourself and take the terrain that's in your gullet and store it in your space vault where you're going to play a game of storage management. You're going to try to attempt to create straight lines of the same terrain types for scoring at the end of the game, as well as trying to create very specific configurations of lands called siphons that will give you bonuses as you play. The game ends when the shard is devoid of any terrain and is only left with barren land, or when there's enough damage to the shard done by fractures that makes the shard too unstable for the arenas to land on. I can't stop talking about this game without getting a smile on my face for a lot of different reasons. 
One of the biggest reasons I like the game is because of how silly and ridiculous the game sounds as you start describing it and what happens to other people. This is one of the strongest points of games by Devious Weasel Games and Jim Felly is that his games are always super thematic and they almost always create a fun story, an emerging narrative that comes out of each game. You feel like a giant space frog that has some crazy powers as you're running around, destroying the shard in big fights against everyone else, stealing each other's food right out of each other's mouths and raiding each other's vaults as you knock them into the outers of space. The artwork is amazing. It's this mix of color and trippy designs that I never would have thought of. The artists really knocked it out of the park. It features art from Tim Barton, Jim Felly, Chad Hoveter, Tanny Pettit, and Naomi Robinson. The terrain pieces are thick, sturdy cardboard that are different thicknesses to help facilitate what type of terrain it is. And the game comes with a really nice neoprene mat that rolls out and that houses all the mayhem. I don't have very many complaints about the game, but one of the things that initially gave me some challenges was the rulebook. The way that the rulebook is worded made it sound more complex than the game actually is. But the end of the rulebook also does add a lot of variations and rules and modules that you can add to really spice up the game once you have the base rules down. I really appreciate that that lets me really customize the game to my group's preferred complexity. Another thing that I personally don't think is a bad thing, but I think might be a point of contention for some, is that there's no set turn order. At the beginning of the game, you're going to shuffle a deck that has player cards for each player in the game, and you might run, well, you will run into situations where people will have multiple turns in a row, certain players may not have a turn for a little bit. If players do alternate turns, it's not in a set order like going clockwise around the table, which can make it a little challenging to really plan. But once you get used to that and you start thinking in terms of, well, I haven't had a turn in a while, I'm probably going to have a couple of turns in a row and I can really set myself up to do a lot of damage or to take a lot of stuff. I think it is a fun challenge to work around instead of knowing I'm going to go next, then the person next to me, then the person next to them. Cosmic Frog has bumped up to potentially one of my favorite games. My only real complaint with the game is that I wish there were more abilities. With higher player counts, you're going to see all the abilities, and I just wish there were more. Just getting another deck of ability cards would be fantastic and keep this game fresh. If you like games that are high interaction, have an element of chaos, and are a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I definitely think you need to check out Cosmic Frog. For the 5 by my name's Jose, and you can find me on Twitter at Outlazers, that's O-W-L-A-Z-O-R-S, or you can find me on Instagram at Sir Bearsworth. So stop on by, say hi, and let me know what you've been playing. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about German Whist. Well, okay, sort of. I actually want to talk about Paseo Whist, the version we play at my house, which I think is not necessarily superior, but possibly of greater interest to other modern hobby gamers. But first, some background on Whist and trick-taking games in general. Trick-taking games with the French deck of 52 cards have been around for about 400 years, and by the early 18th century in England, they were very much in high fashion for the coffeehouse crowd. Now, these are full-on age-of-reason dudes, heavily into formalizing what they called scientific play. We just call it strategy and tactics, but back then it was a somewhat new idea in card games. That is, it was not tavern gambling or a folk game. 
they were starting to write down rule sets and publish treatises. These dudes were serious, or at least took themselves very seriously. They were mostly poncy rich kids who didn't have to work so they could afford to sit around in coffee houses and write books about card games. The formalized base of most modern trick-taking games you've played is called Whist, that's W-H-I-S-T, and your old buddy Edmund Hoyle, yes, that Hoyle, wrote the first book on it around 1740. Spades, hearts, and of course bridge all derive from Whist. Anybody who was anybody in 19th century Europe was playing Whist. If you've ever read a Jane Austen book, pretty much everybody in them plays Whist. Poe, Conan Doyle, Conrad, Tolstoy, Forrester, all bang on about it too. Whist was really, really, really popular for about a hundred years. It fell out of fashion around the turn of the 20th century because everybody went slowly crazy for bridge, which is really just a more complex bidding Whist variant. America, in particular, went bonkers for bridge from the 30s through the 60s thanks to the tireless grifting and self-promotion of a guy named Eli Culberston who crowned himself the, quote, king of contract bridge, end quote. That's an entire segment unto itself, and you should really look him up. He was sort of a huckster, but also incredibly brilliant, and someone should probably make a movie about him. So, on to Paseo Whist and why you might want to play it. Whist is a four-player partnership game. Like Spades, Hearts, or Bridge, it absolutely cannot be played two-player with the rules as written. In general, two-player trick-taking games are in short supply, because they're mostly based on some form of Whist. There are a few two-player folk adaptations of Whist, of course, but I can't find any definitive answer as to who formalized any of them. Like most folk card games of the common ancestor, they all seem to be as-reported rule sets. Of two-player Whists, so-called German Whist seems fairly common, though there are many variations of it. Paseo Whist is our variant, which I prefer. It plays like this. Deal each player 13 cards. The remaining deck is placed face down with the top card turned up. Flip a coin for first player. They play any card from their hand face up to the table. Their opponent can, of course, choose to take the trick by playing a higher card in the same suit, or throw off any other card in their hand. The suit of the face-up card in the supply is the trump suit, and it changes every trick. A card from the trump suit always beats any card of any other suit. This is important, but we'll come back to it. The winner of the trick discards the two played cards and takes the face-up card into their hand, and the loser takes the face-down card. Repeat until the supply is exhausted. You'll both still have 13 cards. Importantly, in Paseo Whist, you do not have to follow suit in the first half of the game, and no points are awarded. Okay, on to the second half. This is quick, like lightning fast. Winner of the last trick leads the second half of the hand. You must follow suit, but there is no trump suit in the second half. Play out your hands and count up the tricks. But wait, did you get too greedy? Well, if you took all the tricks, you definitely did, and that's bad. You'll score a point for every trick over six you took. This is just how Whist scores, but only up to 10 tricks. 11 or 12 tricks, you get zero and your opponent gets a point. 13 tricks and your opponent gets two points. Though you're not bidding in Paseo Whist, you are aiming for an optimum number of tricks and are penalized for going over, which I love. There are a number of other games that do this as well, like Josh Burgell's excellent Fox in the Forest. So how do you win? Play to eight points or five hands. If you're tied at five hands, play another hand. Like shooting the moon in hearts, I love a rare but possible alternate win condition. And don't get greedy rewards a player dealt an extremely low hand or allows a good player to buy themselves a very low hand in the first half. Now in our plays, this very rarely happens, but when it does, it's incredibly enjoyable. So let's roll back for a second and talk about how trumps work as well. This is not how other versions of two-player whists work. Why? Because I misread a pretty archaic rule set and completely misunderstood it. But it turned out to be great, and I love it. By having the trump suit change every trick in the first half, you're confronted with the decision of weakening your position in the suits where you're strong in order to essentially buy better cards. No trumps in the second half is also very much not how other versions play. For us, though, it ratchets up the variability. 
In a traditional spades high trick taker, you know what suits your opponent wants and can count cards if you're a card counter to track the game. If you're interested in a solvable card game, go for it. But for me, the hallmark of a truly engaging and replayable modern game is, and you already know what I'm going to say here, Emergence, which our plays at Paseo West have paid back to us tenfold. So, who should play Paseo West? People who want a two-player trick-taking game. I give Paseo West 3 out of 5 very normal and joke-free reviewing stars. Why? Because I'm not going to big up a thing I sort of semi-invented. Check out our website at 5bygames.com or my Twitter for a link to the written rules, and please, please, please let me know if you like it or have feedback or suggestions. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter, and now Instagram as well, because I caved to peer pressure, at Discount Compost. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a favorite filler. Every time I attend Origins, I look forward to finding out what interesting small box games my friend Kopak has brought with him as part of his infamous walking game library. There's always something I've never heard of that I fall in love with, and this year it was Hyuldok Mao Mao also known as the Crying Onion Game. This is a 3-6 player card game from designer Leo Colovini that might just leave you in tears. Published in early 2019 by Ravensburger, this oddly onion-themed game is currently only available in German. So, as is my usual, I picked up a copy from Amazon.de. But it was inexpensive and came quickly, so don't let the idea of international ordering dissuade you if you live elsewhere. The game itself is a deck of 98 cards, consisting of 7 suits, each with cards valued from 1 to 7, two copies of each. Players have a hand of 4 cards and a scoring pile in front of them, the cards in which score face value when the game ends. Players get to play a card into their score pile, provided it matches the color or value of the top card. But if the card they choose to play matches color or value with a neighbor's score pile, then they must play on their neighbor's pile instead. So players spend their turns attempting to play cards that match their pile and theirs alone to avoid giving others free points. Should a player be unable or unwilling to play any of the cards in their hand, then they can instead play a card face down on their pile, showing the crying onion on the back side. This resets their pile as anything can be played on a crying onion, but it does come at a price. When all cards have been played and the game ends, before you add up your score, you have to count how many crying onions you have in your score pile. The number of crying onions corresponds to the value of cards that are now worth zero points. Have three crying onions? Well, then all your threes are worth nothing. Have nine crying onions? Well, now your sevens and your twos don't count because of course it wraps around. And so this means that during the game, you're weighing up whether to play a crying onion or give someone else the points that a card brings, making those decisions a lot trickier, especially if you can't remember just how many crying onions you already have. The game also comes with a variant included that adds a set of action cards, and these definitely add even more chaos to the table. When played, these affect the top cards of one or more players' scoring piles, switching them around or even flipping them over. It's a very small addition that doesn't require a lot of extra teach time, but will dramatically increase the unpredictability of this already pretty unpredictable game. I usually play without them just because the base game is so enjoyable by itself, but they're a fun option to have, and I certainly enjoy it when they come out. Hyuldok's art is adorable. Marek Blaha has illustrated each suit with a different member of the Allium family, everything from a grouchy spring onion to an adorably clumsy pearl onion trio. And then there's the poor crying onion on the back of the cards, who's hard to resist awing at as he sobs amidst kitchen equipment. In addition to being super cute, the different art for each suit also means distinguishing the differences of color isn't required, preventing any problems resulting from color blindness or poor lighting. 
But honestly, the art is great, the cards are great, but my favorite aspect of the game's production is a throwaway gag. Inside the box is a tissue, ready to wipe away any tears those pesky onions might cause to be shed. Shield Dock is clearly not a game for when you want to plan and strategize. You're flying by the seat of your pants as every play made by your neighbors changes your options. But if 15 minutes or so to play, I don't need long-term planning. And listening to the groaning of other players when I give them points, but in the process prevent them from playing the card they wanted to play, well, that's half the fun. The Onion Game, as my friends and family call it, is a crowd pleaser. It's easy to teach. Players only ever care about their immediate neighbors, so whether you're playing with three or six, it really doesn't feel very different. And so far, every group I've taught the game to has requested to play it at a later event. So if you're looking for a small box card game that feels familiar enough to those who know games like Uno, but that comes with some tricky, tense decisions and a little more interesting gameplay, well, Heel Doc Mau Mau is well worth searching out. Now I'm off to dry my eyes and count up my points, but until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. When I reviewed Concordia on the 5 by, I called it the best game I never play. Back then, most of my game playing was either solo or two-player, now entirely so, and Concordia didn't have solo rules and was too cutthroat a two-player for my taste. Well, the new Solitaria expansion solves both of those complaints. Concordia Solitaria was designed by Matt Gertz, Concordia's designer, and Frank Lamprecht, and published in 2021 by P.D. Verlag. This review will assume you're familiar with the Concordia base game, but if you'd like a refresher, check out my review in episode 76 or Lindsay's excellent review in episode 12. As you might guess from the name, Concordia Solitaria is a Concordia expansion with solo rules. Solo and two-player co-op, to be precise. In both solo and co-op, you play against Contrarius, which literally means the opposite. Contrarius doesn't have money or resources and never takes a turn. Instead, it reacts to each of your turns. If you play the Mercator, Contrarius builds a house. If you play the Architect, Contrarius takes a card, etc. Solitaria comes with four custom dice that you roll to see how Contrarius's actions play out, which card it takes, and so forth. And there's also an algorithm to determine where Contrarius will build. You can use your diplomat to play any of Contrarius's cards, including the ones it takes from the board. However, you can only activate each of Contrarius's cards once. Then you turn it over, and it isn't available to your diplomat again. You have to plan and wait for the best time to use Contrarius's cards to give you the most bang for the buck, so to speak. The team variant of Concordia Solitaria is similar, though more complex. Both players take the action on every card that's played, but Contrarius only reacts once. So you get two actions to its one, but to balance that, some of the actions are weakened. Instead of the Senator, for example, you have the Praetor, who can only buy one card. When the game begins, only one of you has a diplomat. I find team play generally more challenging than solo because of the coordination required to keep both players acting optimally. It's difficult when one player has a killer series of moves lined up, which would require the other player to mess up the killer play they're working on. If you really get stuck, there's the new Legatus card, which lets your partner play one of their cards on your turn, then they take their turn immediately after. Solitaria's team version deals one final blow to you in the scoring. Contraria scores as usual. It has no Vesta, but scores everything else as a normal player. 
You and your partner, however, score each god individually and then calculate the median between the two, and that's your score. If one of you goes all out in, say, Jupiter and Minerva, but completely neglects Mars and Mercurius, while the other does the reverse, that will tank your score when you start looking at the medians. Keeping your scores balanced in Team Solitaria just adds to the good frustration that is a hallmark of Concordia. I found the solo version of Solitaria too easy at the standard difficulty level, although I confess in my first couple of games I misread the Prefect card in my favor, and while I did still win those games, it wasn't the blowout I initially thought. Still, even with the correct rule there, I found the veteran difficulty level more to my liking. There's also an expert level which looks difficult indeed. I'm looking forward to trying it and kinda hoping Contrarius will kick my butt. I like a challenge. If I have a criticism of Concordia Solitaria, it's that the game is a bit prone to AP. You always know what Contrarius is going to do, and you can plan your strategy around it. Like if there's a card you really want to buy, but you don't have the resources, just don't play any actions that cause Contrarius to take a card. The ability to predict Contrarius's actions makes the game almost puzzly, and I really love puzzles. But you can end up down a rabbit hole trying to plot out the best combination of future moves for you and your partner that won't be good for Contrarius. I love the use of Latin words in the Concordia base game and in Solitaria. I just wish they had come up with a Latin name for the team variant. Unitum, maybe? Or Cooperari? Or even Collaboratio? I also wish I remembered my Latin from school way back when, but it's been so long, all I have at this point is multas pergentes et multa per aquora vectus, which was the first line of a poem I had to memorize. Don't remember the rest, just the first line. And I would definitely travel multas pergentes and multa per aquora to play this excellent variant on an already stellar game. You might think Solitaria is a bit expensive since all you get is a deck of cards, four custom dice, and two thin rulebooks, but Concordia Solitaria is an object lesson in how wrong-headed it is to judge a game's value purely on the number of components. There is so much value in that little box. By allowing me to play solo, it has given new life to a game I already cherished. The new rules are so carefully balanced and hang together so well. In elegance and strategy, Solitaria is equal to the original Concordia, and that's the best compliment I can think of. And that's Concordia Solitaria, the best game I used to never play and now can play anytime I want. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall, especially if you want to chat about your favorite Concordia maps. Then I really want to hear from you. You've been listening to The Five By, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on The Five By and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fivebygames. Thanks for listening.